Join us as we get started. Let me begin by praying for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for the fact that your word gives us all things necessary for life and godliness. It is, as uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, sufficient for every good work that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped uh, for training, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, for all things, Lord, in accordance with life and godliness. Your word is sufficient. And so, Father, we thank you and we ask, Father, that today, particularly as we consider uh, the motive of faithfulness in decision-making, that you would open our eyes to this important implication of your word as it relates to the decisions we make both in big things and in small daily things, Father, and you, Father, would help us to be faithful decision-makers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, anytime you make a decision, you want to know what success looks like. How do you decide which fund to invest in? The one that seems like it'll be worth the most money when you retire. How do you decide which brand of peanut butter to buy? The one that is most financially, uh, no, never. No, the one that is uh, you know, best to the environment? No, for me, it's the one that tastes the best. That's what I'm most concerned about. It's the one that's going to taste the best. So what are examples of decisions you've made this past week, and what was the goal they had in mind when you made that decision? Just... Throw it out there. What's a decision you made this past week? What was a goal that you had in mind when you made that decision? I'll tell you a decision I made. I made a decision for my kids to go to bed early last night because Ethan had a little sleepover the night before uh, and stayed up till 5.30 in the morning. So I wanted him, which is fun. It's just tons of fun. I'm glad they got to do that. Um, so, But I wanted him to rest because I want for him to be awake and hear God's word this morning. So last night I made the decision early bedtime. Know what I'm saying? Andy got a nap. So the decision I made, the motive behind it. What was the decision you made? The reason you made it this week? Everybody's making tons of decisions. Yeah. What moving company I'm using to move across the country in a month? And what motivated that? What product, what services they offered best met my needs. Okay. Others. Spent 30 bucks of gas because running out is no fun. Amen. <laughs> Others. Straight up. <laughs> Always a good idea. Winter is coming. It's good to pay your electric bill so that you're not cold. Um, every decision you make has a particular measure of success in mind. What are we trying to accomplish in our decisions? But what is that for a Christian? What is the measure of success for decision-making in our Christian lives? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So in short, we make decisions... With the aim of being faithful. As Christians, we make decisions with the aim of being faithful. And this has massive ramifications on why and how we make decisions. So what we're going to do today is first see where this idea of faithfulness emerges from Scripture. Then we're going to look at the freedoms and responsibility that faithfulness brings to our decision making. So first, and again, if you have a little 
if you haven't grabbed yourself a little note-taking sheet, grab that. It'll help you follow along. First, what is faithfulness according to the Bible? Let's go to this question by starting with some review from last week. Last week, we looked at some of the things that the Bible says are God's will for our lives. Does anybody remember any of those from last week? Some of God's will for our lives. We talk about wanting to find God's will. Well, what's God's will for our lives according to Scripture? Anybody remember anything from last week? You're like, I haven't quite had enough coffee yet. Uh, well, it was for us to obey. Obedience is God's will for our lives. Okay, John 14, 21. Anybody remember any others? Your sanctification, yes, for us to be holy, you know, that's God's will for our lives. Uh, how about, and for Christ to be exalted, that's God's will for our lives. And last week we talked about, and I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, we talked about how frustrating it is that all of these have to do with boring things like developing character and Christian maturity rather than the really important decisions in life like who we should marry, what job we should take. And we finished with a quote from Kevin DeYoung about how messed up that thinking is. Simply put, Kevin DeYoung says, God's will is your growth in Christ-likeness. God promises to work all things together for our good, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. And the degree to which this sounds like a lame promise is the degree to which we prefer the stones and scorpions of this world to the true bread from heaven. God never assures us of health, success, or ease, but He promises us something even better. He promises to make us loving, pure, and humble like Christ. In short, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. The aspect of God's will that he's chosen to reveal to us in the Bible is stuff like obey Jesus and be holy and become like Jesus. Why does he seem to think that is so important? Because in Scripture it seems that God cares more about who you are than what you do. Please hear that. In Scripture, it appears as though God cares much, much more about who you are than about what you do. Let me explain that. Who, what is God's great aim for the universe? Can anybody tell me? What is God's great aim for the universe? To show off His glory. Excellent. And why is that good? Why is that a good aim? Can you tell me? Any ideas? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy that everything should declare his glory. It would actually be unloving and wrong for the creation and everything in it to not point to anything ultimately but him. Okay? Therefore, my. Now, God made you, he redeemed you, and he did that to show off his glory. How does he do that? Well, he brings us to a great paradox of the Christian life. He shows off his work. Through your work. He shows off his work through your work. Take a look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13 on your handout. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our work, okay? Work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who ultimately gets the credit? The one who sent his son to free you from the bonds of sin is the one who gets the credit. The one who gave you a new heart, 
the one who is recreating your desires, the one who aids you by his spirit and guides you by his word. It is ultimately his work that we see as you become more holy. So he's the one who gets the glory. God is the master sculptor, and he is creating in you a masterpiece to show off his power and his goodness and his glory, which means that everything you do has value in two ways. Everything you do has value in two ways. It has value because of what it accomplishes, and it has value because your decision to do it says something about God. I'll give you an example. Let's say you work in the trades. You do your absolute best, uh, whether you're building a deck or welding a tank or wiring a house. And as you do those things, you don't cut corners or do shoddy work. Neither do you take advantage of your customer by overcharging him or her. How does that show off God's glory? Well, there's the substance of what's been accomplished. You've had a hand in building a lovely deck. You've welded a tank such that it's not going to leak. You've wired a house such that its inhabitants have electricity. Those are all good things. There's value in the substance of what has been accomplished. But also there is the manner in which you have accomplished it. You worked hard on the deck because you saw yourself ultimately working for Jesus, not your boss or your customers. By not overcharging... You treated others out of love rather than selfish gain, which is pretty countercultural. And that displays the new life that Jesus has been building in you since the day you were saved. Your work is showing off God's work. Brothers and sisters, when we gather forever around God's throne, I think we'll be praising God for both of those things, the substance of our work and the manner in which we did our work. I think we'll be praising God for both, the substance of your work and the manner of your work. Those things show off His work. But based on the thrust of Scripture, I think the second will prove more important. Not the substance of your work, but the manner of your work. I think that is going to prove more important and significant in the coming day. Uh, let me just retrace the line of thought for you for a second. In the Bible, God's main goal in everything is to show off His glory. As a result, He is more interested in what He's doing in you than what you actually accomplish in a temporal sense. So your work matters because mainly of how it shows off His work in you. So let's just take a look at Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 to see how all of this relates to the concept of faithfulness. Matthew 25. We're not going to spend time reading the whole chapter, but I'm going to summarize it. Okay? Before he goes on a long journey, a master entrusts the money of different amounts, entrusts money of different amounts to different servants. The first two put the money to work, they make more money. The third buries the money. All three give what they have to the master at the end of the parable. The first two servants are rewarded, but the third servant comes up. But when the third servant comes up, Jesus gives the story a twist. I'm going to pick up in verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did the unfaithful servant do that was lazy and wicked? Just in the text, what did he do that was lazy and wicked? What did he do? He hid the money in the ground. That's right. Why was this wrong? He neglected his responsibility. He, and he also didn't consider his master worthy. And, and what was the consequence? I'm sorry? He lost everything. He was thrown into outer darkness into hell. Really? Now that seems like quite a consequence for something as simple as burying the money, right? I mean, he, he did give the money back, didn't he? He didn't steal it. So what's going on here? Well, let me describe in a bit more detail what the servants did. Maybe give you a little bit of a peek, kind of underneath it, if you will. The faithful servants trusted that the master would return, as he said, and so they risked absolutely everything on his promise. They didn't hold a thing back. But the unfaithful servant decided to play it safe. He either thought the master might not return as he promised, or that when he did, faithfulness wouldn't be rewarded. So he hedged his bet, he reduced his risk by burying the talent and doing other things with his time. The faithful servants trusted their master's word, trusted their master's goodness, but the unfaithful servant had faith in neither. Now, when we put God in the place of master, as Jesus does, we understand how evil this assumption is. God is not a hard master. He is beautifully, eternally good and satisfying and trustworthy. What's more, good stewardship advertises that God is good. But bad stewardship advertises that God is not good. And since he is the source and epitome and sum of all that is good, defamation of his goodness is the essence of evil. You may think that you can play both sides and please both masters. But in the end, your desire shows that you have no faith in God. You're not a Christian. This parable isn't about being a good or a mediocre Christian, as if those categories existed. They don't. It's about the difference between heaven and hell. And what is the good servant called by his master? What is the good servant called by his master? Faithful. That's right. Faithful. In the Bible, faithfulness means, just think about this for just a second. In the Bible, faithfulness means stewarding all that God has given us to show off his goodness. In the Bible, faithfulness means stewarding all that God has given us to show off his goodness. So we steward our time, we steward our money, we steward our skills and our relationships. We use all of that for his purposes. When we do that, we show that we believe his purposes to be supremely good, and that is the life of faith, right? Hopefully you should be going like this. Yes. Okay, good. All right. This is our goal in decision making. Every decision has the potential to say something true or false about who God is, and he cares 
hugely about that. Above all else, we want to be counted faithful because faithful means we've used all that God has given to us to show off his worth. And that's important because God created the world. To the extent that we've been able to do that will matter most of all when eternity comes in heaven. So, let me just dissect this idea of faithfulness-focused decision-making a bit more. Let me just dissect this idea of faithfulness-focused decision-making a bit more. So-and-so collected seashells by the seashore. It's just, it's hard. Um, So, making decisions this way, being motivated by faithfulness, means three things, okay? Number one, focus. It means making every decision with our eyes focused squarely on the last day. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. For the Christian, there is no reason to fear that day, With John, our cry should become Lord Jesus, Maranatha, right? But it is a sober day nonetheless, to put it mildly. We should make decisions, setting our hearts on things that are above, not on earthly things. Colossians 3.2. Okay? So, number one, focus. Number two, goal. It means that the goal of every decision is God's glory. If we're motivated by faithfulness, then it means that in our decision making, that it means that the goal of our decision making should be God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A life spent well, a faithful life, is a life focused entirely on displaying the excellence of who God is. That's a life whose value will last in eternity. Okay? Number three, extent. It means that thinking about how all of me can be used in this regard. Regardless of what results God chooses to bring to my efforts, I want to put all of myself at his service. Romans 12.1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The world says that your value is mainly about what you do, right? The world says your value comes mainly from what you do. The more significant your contribution to society, the more your life is worth. The more games you win as a coach, the more you are worth as a coach, right? He says, amen. Ah, that's sometimes not a good thing. But the paradigm of faithfulness is the polar opposite, God says that your value is mainly in what your life shows about what he's done in you. Please lock that down. Like, please lock that down. Faithfulness, God says that your value is mainly in what your life shows about what he's done in you. And that means that sometimes what is of immense, huge value doesn't really register in the world's eyes. Whose life is worth more? The doctor who saved thousands of children's lives or the recovering addict who spent every ounce of his faith and more just to live a normal life and be at church each Sunday? Whose life matters more? We haven't been given the ultimate judgment of that, but we do know 
that, quote, without faith it is impossible to please God. So frankly, I think the recovering addict who spent every ounce of his being simply trying to obey God and be at church on Sunday morning is worth a whole lot more than the doctor's life who saved millions of lives. When we get to heaven, I think we're going to be amazed at what was actually significant on earth. I think we're going to be amazed. Any questions so far? Any questions so far? I'm trying to steward our time well. Um, something, uh, something either true or false about who God is. Every decision you make has the, the ability to, and it does in some sense, declare something either true or false about who God is and what he's done in you. Yeah, you are. Yeah, that's right. Can you explain why that is? I know that's okay. Because you're... Well, it's just like whenever we believe that God is supremely good, we live like God is supremely good, which means that we um, choose to obey Him rather than disobey Him. And when we disobey Him, we're showing that there's a disconnect between what we believe and what, how we actually live. And that is not showing God to be supremely good. It's showing God to be less than supremely good. Right? So it's why there's this fundamental disconnect in somebody saying they're a Christian, but then they're just partied and they party and they're hammered on Saturday night, but then they show up at church on Sunday. You're like, that's, that's, that's declaring a lie about who God is. Okay? So, faithfulness also brings freedom. This is point two. Faithfulness brings freedom. Generally, the decision making we're used to is what you might call outcome based decision making. In other words, your goal for making a decision is to secure a particular outcome. So like what I talked about at the beginning of the class, right? Invest in a particular fund to secure your retirement. Take a particular job to secure wealth and happiness, so forth and so on. Contrast that with faithfulness-focused decision-making. Invest in a fund so as to be faithful with the money that God has given you by trusting Him entirely for your retirement. Take the job to be faithful to God's command to work, but trust his providence for whatever your job might bring. Just to tease out the difference, let's contrast these two. In outcome-focused decision-making, we trust ourselves for the outcome. In faithfulness-focused decision-making, we trust God for the outcome. So like the retirement example I gave you earlier, let's say you make wise decisions with your money, and then something completely unexpected occur occurs, and you lose everything. The world would say you are a failure, but from a faithfulness perspective, you are just fine. Your decisions were faithful, even if they didn't work out as you planned, it still showed off God's goodness, success. In outcome-focused decision-making, we get the credit for good results. In faithfulness-focused decision-making, God gets the credit. So that's a difference. In outcome-focused decision-making, success is something we can see. Does the outcome happen to be what we wanted? In faithfulness-focused decision-making, there are, it's just, success is a bit more murky, <laughs> right? Success is a bit more murky. We won't actually be able to see what success was until we get to heaven, although we can be confident we're being faithful to God if we're being obedient to His clear commands in Scripture, okay? Okay, with these definitions in mind, let's just look at how the concept of Faithfulness brings freedom in decision-making. Specifically, I have in mind three freedoms that you're going to see in your handout. Okay, Three freedoms. Number one, freedom from perfectionism. 
Some of us struggle with paralysis by analysis, indecision making, because we're perfectionists. You can't even decorate your living room because it has to be perfect. You can't write your sermon because it has to be perfect. Or you agonize about your decision about where to send your kids to school or what house to buy because my whole life depends on this decision being right. Or you're terrified to get married because you might be marrying Mr. Wrong, right? Now, I don't want to necessarily play down the reality of those fears. To take the last example, living in a bad marriage is bad. (laughs) Uh, Your decisions matter. They matter hugely. But here's the key. You don't trust your mate-picking prowess when you get married. You trust God. You enter into that union out of faith in Him, not faith in the one you've done your homework on and you believe that you're just right and set for life. You, you don't know what marriage holds. You, you t- the more, I've been married almost 20 years now and I'm very much convinced, and those of you who've been married longer, I'm sure you're even more convinced than me, we really didn't know what marriage held when we got started, right? You just don't know what you're going to come up against. You have no clue. But he promises that whatever comes is from his hand and will be for your ultimate lasting good and for his glory and you can trust him. So stop thinking that your primary goal in making decisions is to secure a a certain outcome like obedient kids or the perfect looking home decorating scheme. God doesn't guarantee any of that no matter how well you follow some process for good decision making. You make a good decision in order to be faithful with the opportunities that God has given you. Then you trust the outcome to Him. If the outcome isn't what you'd hoped for, you work by faith to trust that His plan is always best. Now some wise secular advice I've received is that if a decision is reversible, make it decisively and move on. Do your best to gather the information you need to make a faithful decision, then move along. Don't sit there and be paralyzed and unable to make a decision because you don't know if it's going to turn out perfectly. Trust God. He is in control. He knows what's best. Were you faithful in how you made the decision? Did your decision show Him to be good and trustworthy? Then you've done what you need to do. That's the confidence we can have as servants of an all-powerful, all-merciful, all-sovereign God. Okay? Somebody say amen, even if you don't believe it. Amen, but you should believe it. Okay, number one. Number two, freedom from regret. So freedom from perfectionism, freedom from regret. There's a second related freedom that we should examine, which is freedom from regret. Having made a decision, some of us seem to live life looking over our shoulders, filled with fear that we've made the wrong decision, And if we're honest, sometimes that fear itself becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Sometimes that regret is driven by fear of other people's opinions. Will people admire me for my foresight in purchasing this house? Will my boss get angry at me for making such a foolish business decision? Will people ridicule me for my choice of carpet color? Sometimes that regret, now we have to say this, Sometimes that regret is driven by reality. So sometimes it's driven by fear of what others think. But sometimes it's driven by reality. It may become clear that you did make a bad decision. You did overpay for your house. You did pick a bad roommate. 
You did rent a terrible vacation house for your family's vacation. You did make a bad investment. You did overcommit yourself. Sometimes we really do make bad decisions. Now, what's your response when that happens? Do you savage yourself? Do you beat yourself up? Do you self-flagellate yourself with how bad you are? Do you obsess over all the things you've done wrong in this thing? The thing you need to realize is that God could have kept you from making that decision if he wanted to. It is certainly within his power. Why didn't he? Well, he must have greater things in view than you do. Even if you don't expect to understand that until heaven. In that sense, I find Revelation 15 comforting. One day we're going to stand before the redeemed in heaven and we're going to sing this song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The key there is that last the, the key there is the tense of that last verb. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Brothers and sisters, from that blessed vantage point in the future, we will see all that God has done, and it will finally make perfect sense. And we will be able to call all of his acts right, because we will see them as right. And we won't see them as right by faith. We'll actually see them as right by sight at that point in time. And that's going to be a glorious day. We aren't going to look back at anything that's happened and say, you know what, God, that... That wasn't quite right, what you did there. No, no, no. (laughs) We're just going to look back and say, you did it perfect. Oh my goodness, Lord, you did it so perfect. Thank you. Even through all of my failings and my sin, you did it so perfect. Thank you. That's, That's a beautiful thing. It gives you freedom from regret. Even if you did make a bad decision, brothers and sisters. I'm sorry? John, that's going to send our whole time into a totally different trajectory, into a universe, so I'm not going to answer that question right now, okay? (laughs) Of course, it is quite possible that you are not faithful in how you made that bad decision, and in that case, you should repent of your faithlessness. Sorrowful, not mainly because of the consequences of the bad decision. Please, brothers and sisters, note that. Be sorrowful, not mainly because of the consequences of the bad decision, but because of a faithless decision that showed a lack of trust in the eminently trustworthy and good God, who has never given you the slightest reason to distrust his care. Okay? But do you need to beat yourself up over the consequences? No, you do not. You need to patiently and humbly bear them as part of God's good plan. Self-flagellation over a bad decision may seem humble and contrite, but actually at its core, (laughs) it can be quite arrogant. (laughs) Why did I make such a bad decision? I deserve to make good decisions. I am better than that. I have no business making bad decisions. I am a successful and good person. (laughs) So hopefully you see that that's bad. Um, Okay. Faithfulness 
uh, focused decision making brings freedom from regret because we trust God's goodness, even with the consequences of our bad decision. A bad decision in no way negates the promise of Romans 8.28 that he uses all things for your good. So that's number two. So number one, freedom from perfection. Number two, freedom from regret. Number three, freedom from pride. There is a third freedom that, fa- that faithfulness, that a focus on faithfulness <laughs> brings, which is a freedom from pride. What happens when your decisions do work out as you planned? When your house does appreciate in value, your wife loves the vacation, your wife is amazed at your thoughtfulness, husbands, or your resume builds some staircase to heaven in an ever-expanding world of corporate success. Um, do you become proud? Right? Think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 just before he's humbled. What did he say? Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? How foolish that must be to God. So think of four people who make equally thoughtful stock market investments. God chooses to bless one of them. He swells with pride his brilliance. The other three shrink back in shame and regret. That is ridiculous. As Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2.7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. When you make a decision, make it your goal to be faithful and entrust the outcome to God. If He blesses, praise Him. If He blesses, praise Him. Any wisdom you had was the gift of heaven anyway. May God protect us from turning his gifts into pride that walls us off for him. As Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? Okay. Now also, as we talk about freedom from anxiety and worry, that is exactly what some of you need to hear. You need to hear that faithfulness in decision making frees you from anxiety and and worry. Excuse me. And some of you need to hear that because you're type A's with your budget all in line and your vacations planned down to the hour and executing on everything as best as you possibly could. But not all of us are like that. For some of us, the three freedoms I've just described push us dangerously close to irresponsibility. Okay? So, what you're saying is... Make a sound decision and don't, get another, uh, don't give it another thought, right? By, by which you mean, okay, I'm going to make a half-hearted attempt to kind of think through the issue and then I'm going to party on. Okay, not good. Um, that's where we need to remember that the call to faithfulness is a high calling. There will come a day in time when you will stand before the Lord and he will, you will give an account for your entire life. So just as those three servants did with uh, the talents. The Bible isn't exactly clear what will happen or the interplay between our perfect righteousness in Christ and our accountability as Christians, but it is clear that this day should have our attention. There is a responsibility that we have for the things that we do with that which God has entrusted to us, and there will be a reckoning. That's that's significant. If there is anything more, uh, I'm sorry, is there, more, any, is there anything more important in your Christian life 
than being counted faithful as a steward in God's house. Is there anything light or trite about that calling? It is God who works in us and God who gets the glory. And so, through his power, we should seek with all of our might to be as faithful as in this life as we possibly can be. And when we fail, to repent and to continue to move forward in faithful obedience. And I just want to finish our class today. We've got about nine minutes. By hearing back from you... What's been most useful about this concept of faithfulness-focused decision-making? Okay, uh, Is it important because you are in need of freedom from anxiety? Or is it important because you need to feel the weight of this responsibility? Which of the freedoms did I mention feels most freeing for you? What has been the most useful part about today's class for you? Thoughts? What's been the most useful part of this class today for you? When you think about faithfulness in decision-making, and that that frees you from perfectionism, pride, regret, but also calls you to responsibility, and not like a, well, God's going to do everything, let's just party on. It's fine. Miles? Freedom from perfectionism? Well, and it's a, and it's a, it's a, it's really just a transformation of the motive behind wanting to be the best. Because in one sense, you want to be the best because that shows off God's glory. You do want to be the best coach you can be. You do want to be the best father you can be. And to the extent other Christians or other coaches are doing it well, you want to emulate them, not in order to be awesome, but because God is awesome and you want to show off His awesomeness in the way you carry out those things. So it's, it's the motive behind wanting to do well that shifts and then in turn frees us from the either paralysis of perfectionism or the swelling up of ourselves in pride when we have the, you know, the 13 and 2 season, right? So, yeah, good. Yes, yes, that's significant, isn't it? I know for me, uh, freedom from regret is so much easier that uh, my mind plays like a broken record when I do something that I know is just a total screw up. And, and I can use these loops where I just replay that moment, you know, in every possible other way I could have done that, um, just over and over and over again. And it's, it's a terribly difficult thing to do, but, but knowing that, that that thing was brought into my life and Indeed. 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 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's very good. What else? Such good things to muse on. Renee. And praise God that, you know, if you are being patient and kind, that is displaying his glory. Like that's a that's showing him, you know, you know, that's that's the Christian who doesn't light up the guy at the tire count at the, you know, when he's getting new tires and finds out that the and he's about to go on a trip. It's the winter. And, you know, the the tires that he that he purchased and planned to have installed and had an appointment for that day, they're not in. And, the you know. The manager communicates, they're not in. I'm so sorry. It's when that Christian doesn't light him up, um, uh, but instead responds with, okay, self-control should be my goal, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and responds in kindness. That just shows off God's mercy and kindness in situations like that. Yeah. Other things. Other ways in which this encourages you or maybe pokes at you. So like I said, some of you need to be freed from you know, the fear of perfectionism or pride or regret or all those things. But, but some of you need to be poked in regards to uh, actually need to take your call to be faithful a whole lot more seriously. Like this isn't an excuse to just say la vie. Let's have a Christian form of eating, drinking, rising up to play. Um, you know, um, So it, it cuts both ways. Yeah. Yeah. We t- we tend to just oftentimes we Christians tend to just just have pen- significant pendulum swings about all sorts of things, right? Um, and so we just have to to watch those pendulum swings and just think, am I am I just going right down the middle here? Holiness, love, obedience to Jesus Christ. You know. Um, yeah. We can we can be pendulum swingers. Yes. Yeah. Or even mom, you're doing a great job. Stop, you know, beating yourself up. Doing great. Thanks, mom. Love you. Not my kids. Go ahead.
Sure. That's right. Yeah, there's a whole realm of wisdom that needs to be pursued, and this, the, and and there's motives that need to be examined. And the, while the decision may not be sinful, there may be sinful motives, which should in fact be repented of. It's tricky. This being a Christian thing, so tricky. Grateful for God's grace, uh, and that it doesn't depend on us ultimately, because other, we would be toast. Chickapow. Uh-huh. <laughs> so those times where we feel like we're looking for guidance and we feel like the answer isn't necessarily there is collect all the information, make the best decision, and trust that it's all going to work out. Exactly. And all going to work out, meaning uh, God's will will be done. He will sanctify you in and through the process, not necessarily that it's going to be exactly what you want. So we have the freedom to make the decision. Oh, yes. And move on. Exactly. What yeah, exactly. Move on with confidence um, that God is sovereign and he will work in and through this, even if it ultimately ends up being that I made a bad decision. Absolutely. Move on. Yeah, it's very freeing. Very, very freeing. Let's pray, because it's 10.15. Lord, thanks for the fact that you are a faithful God. Help us, God, in our decisions and in our lives uh, to live lives that evidence and declare and display your faithfulness uh, in what you have done through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.